Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13. A very familiar portion of Scripture, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Just two verses, but two spectacular verses. And I want to read the text and pray for God's help right off the bat. And then we are, we're going to dive in and uh, we're going to mine these verses for the treasure of, of truth and glory and hope and strength and encouragement that are here. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for partnership, partnership in the gospel. It is precious beyond words. Thank you that we're family, just with extended family here. And even though I don't know all these folks, we have all eternity to get to know one another really well. And and that's a beautiful thing. And Lord, thank you for your, your word. We love your word. Thank you for being a God who speaks to us. Your word is truth. And so together we say amen to the prayer Jesus prayed for us before he died. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen to that. Sanctify us. Transform us. Make us holy. Make us more and more like Jesus as we focus now on your truth. So let truth hold sway. So to that end, protect my lips from from error. Guard us all from error. I'm a feeble, fallible preacher talking about glorious truth. And so I confess, we all confess, this sermon will only have an effect on us, the, the, the effect you intend for the good of our souls if you break in with spiritual power. Spiritual power by your Holy Spirit. So would you do that? Open our minds and hearts to your word and open your word now to our minds and hearts. For our good and for our joy and for your honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, the great Welsh preacher from the mid-20th century, wrote this about our text. He said, It is perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. Here is one of the most pregnant statements which even Paul himself ever made. This text is all about the Christian life. It's about living a life of obedience to God. It's a text about our growth in godliness. It's a text about putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ. It's a text about killing sin and living by the Spirit. In other words, it's a text about the process of what we call sanctification. It's the process of becoming more godly, more holy, more like our obedient Savior, Jesus. And it is a process. We know that, right? It's a lifelong process. When God saved us, 
In that moment when he granted the grace to bank our hope on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the fulfillment of all his promises to us, in that moment, God did not bend down and kiss the frog and immediately transform the frog into a handsome prince or a beautiful princess. What he did do was make a declaration over the frog. He said about us, we frogs, that the moment we believed, he said this, based on the righteous life of my son and based on his obedient and sacrificial death and based on his victorious resurrection and based on his glorious ascension, I hereby declare this frog to be holy and righteous and above reproach in my sight. Colossians 1.22 I will no longer look at that frog without looking to my son. And what I see in my son, I will count as belonging to that frog. That, brothers and sisters, is the glorious doctrine of justification. It's God's legal declaration that we are, in his sight, holy frogs though we be. And it's, it's at that moment of that act of justification that God begins in us the process of sanctification, the process of turning the frog into a prince or a princess. Sanctification is the process whereby we become what we've already been declared to be, which is holy. Or to put it like Paul does in our text, Sanctification is the process whereby we work out our salvation. That's what this text is all about. And God intends for it to bring clarity and hope and help and, and uh, in, encouragement to us as we live the Christian life. Now, that word, therefore, at the beginning of our verses burns off the page. And it burns off the page because it, it must be dealt with before we move on to the heart of the text because that word ties our text to what's come before it. And it reminds us that our text this morning has a context. And remembering that context is key in understanding and applying these verses. So there's a wider context. So that word, therefore, reaches all the way back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Here it is. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase is the heading over everything the Apostle Paul says from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. So it's the heading over our verses today. There is a manner of life that shows the worth and power of the gospel. And if we, we turn that into a question, how do we live so as to show the worth and power of the gospel? The answer from our text is, we do that by working on our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that God is at work within us. That's the wider context. Then there's the immediate context, which is also the gospel. You know Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm not going to read it, but 
You know it. It, it. it is a mountain range of the glories of Christ. Christ who took on human nature, who became a slave, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so is exalted as the Lord over all and will one day be worshipped by all creation. That's the wider context and that's the immediate context. And of course, the context for our text is the gospel. It's only because of the gospel that we can hope to work out our salvation in sin-slain obedience. It's Christ's life and Christ's death and Christ's resurrection that sets us free from sin so that now we are free to stop sinning and obey God, to become progressively more and more like Him, to live in harmony with His worth and His excellence. It's Christ's cross and Christ's resurrection that grants us freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. Freedom to begin to obey. It's at the cross of Christ that God cancels our sin so that we can conquer our sin by the Holy Spirit. When at the cross our sin was canceled and the condemning power of sin was canceled. That did not make our working out of salvation, our striving to be holy as He is holy, it didn't make it unnecessary. It made it possible and in the end, successful. So that's the context. That's what the word therefore is referring to. So let's dive into the heart of the text now. We're going to do it under two simple, very obvious headings. First heading, our work. That's the second half of verse 12. Next heading is God's work. That's verse 13. Our work, God's work. So we're going to take them in order. So first, our work. Verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me make this point clear right away. Work out your salvation in the original Greek means work out your salvation. That's what it means. The word that gets translated work out means produce it or bring it about, or affect it. Now think about that. A literal translation would be, produce your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that language is almost dangerous. The Bible can be a dangerous book. It's got to be handled with care. And so I I recognize we're on a tightrope here. And on the tightrope, we've got to keep our balance. Work out the salvation that you received as a gift of grace. Put your salvation on display in a way that honors Christ, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And, And the way this verse is written makes it clear that takes labor. That takes continuous 
sustained effort. That's what the word translated work means. Continuous, sustained effort. The emphasis here is clearly on our responsibility. We are not passive in the process of sanctification, which is exactly why Paul begins here, I believe. This could have been a much more comfortable text if Paul would have begun with God's work in verse 13. But he didn't do that because he doesn't want us to be comfortable. Holiness does not happen apart from our effort. Our effort to obey. That's what working out is. Look at the text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, obey. Well, that's what I would expect Paul to say, but that's not what he says. He replaces the word obey with the phrase, work out your own salvation. Working out our own salvation is obeying. But he says it this way because he wants to make clear that our active obedience is essential to finally being saved. The Apostle John says it the same way, same thing. 1 John 2, 4 through 6. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. So by this, we know we're in Christ. By this, we know we're saved. Here it is. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Jesus walked in obedience. Jesus walked in holiness. So that's how we work out our salvation. We act out our deliverance from sin, which is ours in Christ. We act our victory over sin, which is ours in Christ. We strive for the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. That's not my language. That's Hebrews 12.4. There is a measure of holiness required. Not to justify us, but to give evidence that we are indeed justified. And it's absolutely essential. Without the evidence, we are lost. Obedience is possible and obedience is absolutely necessary. Now, I say this in no uncertain terms and I stress it because the false teaching that we should not expect Christians to change is out there. And it's seeping into the wider church. It actually seeped into mind. The last person to leave my church for theological reasons left because according to him, I preach the law and not the gospel because when I come to imperatives, when I come to commands in the Bible, I urge the people in my church to obey those commands. And I urge them to obey those commands because I don't want them to die and go to hell. I want them to work out their salvation. But some would say that urging Christians to obey the Bible's commands is 
graceless legalism. Only the Apostle Paul didn't think so. And so I don't think so. But there are people who think so. One author comes to Philippians 2, 12-13, our text, and writes this. Sanctification is the daily hard work. So here, here's the work of sanctification. Of going back to the reality of our justification. Our work means coming to a greater understanding of Jesus' work. Another author says, sanctification is the art of getting used to our justification. Sanctification is the art of getting used to our justification, of our being declared righteous. Now here's what I say in response. That's reductionistic. And it doesn't deal carefully with the whole counsel of God. In fact, it doesn't deal carefully with our text. And, and it, it leads to what's been referred to as celebratory failureism. The celebrating of our failings. Most of us have heard people say something like this. I am a wretched sinner. But praise God, Jesus came to save wretched sinners like me. I am such a wretch that I cannot faithfully obey God's commandments for one moment, let alone one full day. Everything I do, even the apparently good things, are shot through with sin and ruined. I can't love God with my heart. I can't love my neighbor as myself. My heart is black with sin, and I'm unfaithful to my faithful Savior. But Jesus has saved me by his death and resurrection. He's forgiven me and he's wiped the guilt of my sin away. He's declared me righteous based on his life. I'm God's adopted child. And even though I continue in sin, I cannot disappoint my heavenly father because when he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son. Praise God, what a gospel. Now, before you get too nervous, let me say, I believe that almost all of that is absolutely true, it's unspeakably precious, and it's gloriously beautiful. I mean, when we hear a paragraph like that, we read it on a blog, in a book, we instinctively praise God for His gospel grace. The trouble is, those are the words of someone who has lost their balance. It's not entirely true. It's not a careful statement about the power of the gospel. And we know why, don't we? Because obedience is possible. Holiness is attainable. Killing sin is doable. The Bible says so over and over and over again. It can sound very humble to say, I can't do it. I'm too big of a sinner. But that's not humble, that's harmful, because it's not true. And what it actually does is denigrate the amazing grace of God that it hopes to celebrate. The grace that not only justified through faith, but also gives us the power of Christ to live new lives. I mean, have you heard people say, I'm gospel-centered. I'm not into all that talk about killing sin and obeying the law. 
I've heard that. I hear that repeatedly. But it's, a, it's creating a false dichotomy. I'm gospel-centered too. And I want a gospel that not only frees me from the penalty of sin, but also frees me from the power of sin. I want that gospel smack dab in the middle of every sermon that I preach and every sermon that I hear because the gospel is power for change. The gospel is power for obedience. It is an impotent gospel that leads people to say, all our attempts to obey fail thereby making us recipients of greater grace. That's wrong. God does not exhort us to work out our salvation, to obey, in order to teach us that we cannot hope to obey. I don't tell my kids the rules of the house and then expect them not to obey. Here are the rules. Now go. I know you can't obey these rules. So when you don't obey them, come tell me about it. We can obey. That, that's the hope. That, that's the power of the gospel. And we need that hope, don't we? We need that hope because the world and the devil are pressing in on us every single day to succumb to the remaining sin in our own hearts. So we need to know that there is gospel grace to walk in God's ways, to work out our salvation. The, the Christian life is not merely Fail, repent, repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. I've been stuck in that rut. Maybe you have too. If you've been there in that rut, then you know that's devastating. It devastates people. It devastates relationships. It devastates marriages. It devastates families. The Bible tells us, God tells us, this is my way. Walk in it. And I will give you all the grace you need to walk in it. Sanctification is more than you will fail, but there's grace for you. Sanctification is about failing less than we used to as we learn to obey in motive and deed just like Christ, our brother, obeyed. It's about more and more taking on the family resemblance, being holy as our heavenly Father is holy. I think one of the reasons that we can get hung up here is because we can slip into equating obedience with perfection. So, if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, I will never lose my temper. I will never lust. I'll never be lazy. I'll never give in to self-pity. I'll never succumb to fear of man. I'll never do a good thing with mixed motives. I'll never lack joy in Jesus. How many of us can say that? I don't go to bed at night ever thinking that I've been kind enough today. I've been loving enough. I've been gracious enough. I've been faithful enough. Do you? Now here, here's the danger. Rather than dealing with that weight of expectation of perfection that we put on ourselves, we just chuck the emphasis on obedience altogether. But listen, it is not true that the call to obedience, the call to work out our salvation, is a call to perfection. That's not true. If God only accepted our perfect obedience, where would we be? 
And here's the good news. By His grace, God accepts our imperfect obedience through Christ. We will always be imperfect in this life. God knows that. He, He sovereignly designed sanctification as a process. He could have just kissed the frog and transformed us immediately, but He didn't. But He began the process by justifying us. He's already declared us perfect in Christ's perfection. Now we're in the process of becoming God still gives commands in the new covenant. And now we obey them, not having to prove ourselves and, and earn some status before God. We obey them hoping to live out all that we are in Christ. And when we do obey, this is really good news. God is pleased. God is pleased with our imperfect obedience. That's amazing. And we need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear it over and over. You need to hear it. My father is pleased. God is pleased with my imperfect obedience because when I obey, I'm bringing my life more and more in harmony with his worth and excellence. When we work out our salvation, when we obey and trust, our Heavenly Father is pleased with us. It's all over the Bible. When we do good works and grow in our knowledge of God, He is pleased, Colossians 1.10. When we present our bodies as living sacrifices of worship, God accepts it and is pleased, Romans 12.1. When we look out for our weaker brother, God is pleased, Romans 14.18. When children obey their parents, it pleases the Lord, Colossians 3.20. When we're faithful to speak the gospel, it pleases God, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. When we share with others and make sacrifices on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's pleasing to God, Hebrews 13.15. When we keep God's commandments, we please Him, 1 John 3.2. Whenever we trust and obey, God is pleased. Our obedience is possible and it's necessary and God is pleased to accept our imperfect obedience. That's the power of gospel grace. It's power for gospel growth. It's the power to work out our salvation. And we're called to work out our salvation with a particular attitude. It's the end of verse 12. It says this. We're to do it. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that phrase points us to our next heading. So we're moving to God's work now. And it points us to verse 13 because the reason we're to do it with fear and trembling, and I'm not talking about being afraid afraid that I'm not going to do it right, that we're going to mess up and we're going to lose God's favor. Not that kind of fear. We're talking doing it with reverential awe. That kind of fear. When we work out our salvation, we're, we're to do it. We're to work out our salvation with reverential awe because God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe, 
our Redeemer and Justifier. Our Father is so close to us that He's working in us. I mean, let that fill you with awe and reverence that makes you tremble. God is at work in you. God is at work in me. Verse 13 again. For, now praise God that doesn't say so that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not so that God will be at work in you. That's heresy. Work out your salvation for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This call here to to work out, Philippians 2.12, to strive, Hebrews 12, to train, 1 Timothy 4, to make every effort, 2 Peter 1, to put to death, Colossians 3, to put off and put on, Ephesians 4, to fight, 1 Timothy 6, to run, Hebrews 12, to press on, Philippians 3, to toil and struggle, Colossians 1. I mean, that would be overwhelming, except for that little word for at the beginning of verse 13. The entire Christian life hangs on one little word. We work for or because God is already at work in us. Hallelujah. I mean, that means that verse 12 is not an appeal to self-sufficiency. It means our growth in holiness is not self-generated. We are not left alone to work out our salvation. This clarifies how we grow. Our effort is necessary, but only God's power makes our effort possible. We work out because God works in. So, we don't sit idly by and wait for the urge to obey or the urge to do good works to come upon us or the urge to kill sin. No, we get up and we do it with the confidence that it's God causing us to do it. I mean, this is a stunning announcement. This is a happy announcement. This is an encouraging and and hopeful and assuring announcement. You need it. I need it. God is at work in you and he's at work in me. He is at work in every Christian. And this verse is the accent and emphasis of our text. This verse, God's work is the cause. Verse 12, our work is the effect. God's work is the cause of our work. He's the infinite worker. When our finite work is empowered by God's work, our work becomes an expression of His work in us. That's why God accepts our faith and obedience. It's why it pleases Him. It's ultimately an expression of His work in us. And God's work in us is comprehensive. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. In other words, not only does God empower the working, but He empowers the willing behind the working as well. That's why I've entitled this sermon, The Empowered Will to Obey. The Desire to Obey. 
and please God. The will to do it and the actual doing of it are all because of God. If you have any inclination in your heart at all to please God and run the race of the Christian life, you can be encouraged. God put that in your heart. I mean, are you tempted to despair in your battle to put remaining sin to death? Are you weary in your attempts to obey? Are you confused about how growth and holiness even happens? Well, here's the answer that turns despair into joy, weariness into strength, and confusion to clarity. God is at work in us both to will and to work. God is at work. God is at work in you. He's always working in you. It's not always obvious to you that he's working in you. Sometimes you can't even tell. Sometimes you wonder if anything's happening at all. Well, here's what we now know to be true no matter how we feel. God is always at work in the lives of his children. And he does it all for his good pleasure, our text says. God will be a happy God. Philippians 1.6 is true. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started it. God will complete it. And God will keep on working in us in the meantime. And so we can go forward. We can press on. We can work out our salvation trusting that God is always at work in us. And let me encourage you to let these two verses stand together. We must keep them in tension. We have to keep them in tension because if we do, we'll stay on the tightrope, right? When a tightrope loses its its tension it droops and when it droops you fall off this is god's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side in perfect tension and we must keep them there we have to keep them there because they're together in perfect tension all over the bible let me show you 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this, I, Apostle Paul, worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul killed the sin of laziness, and he made every effort to work hard in ministry, but the decisive power to kill the sin of laziness and to work hard came from the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 and 17. This is, these are an amazing couple of sentences. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So God gives zeal to Titus. That is, he works in him the willing, and then Titus acts in that earnestness of his own accord. He works out his salvation. And Paul doesn't see a contradiction here. There is no contradiction between God's working the will to do a thing and Titus willing that as his will. It is his will. 
God doesn't contradict the will. God transforms the will. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're commanded here to put sin to death. In other words, we should not wait for God to kill our sin while we remain passive. We kill it, yet we're to kill it by the Spirit. It's ultimately by God's Spirit that sin is slain. But we do the slain. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks, we do the speaking, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, we do the serving. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is the strength in all our speaking and all our serving, but we do the speaking and serving. One more. Colossians 1.29 For this I toil, struggling. So, so Paul is the one toiling and struggling. How's he doing it? With all his, with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. There it is, side by side in perfect tension. One time, Charles Spurgeon was approached by someone who challenged him. And he asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? To which Spurgeon replied, I do not try to reconcile friends. Verse 12 and verse 13 of Philippians 2 are friends. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us. God produces, we perform. God's work in our sanctification does not limit or nullify our work in sanctification. It creates it. John Piper has given us all kinds of great terms, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, books. One of my favorite is his description of the process of sanctification. It's really a paraphrase of our text. Here it is. Act the miracle. Act the miracle. Three words and the guy nails it. Act the miracle. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13 in three words. Now acting a miracle is not the same as working a miracle. When Jesus tells the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, Jesus is working a miracle. When that man stretches out his hand, he's acting the miracle. When it comes to working out our salvation, we don't wait passively for the miracle of killing sin or the miracle of pressing on or the miracle of obeying or striving to be worked on us. We act the miracle that's already taking place inside of us. The process of sanctification, of becoming holy, is a divine miracle in us. And we act the miracle as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God authors the miracle of sanctification. We act the miracle. So, take heart, weary sin killer. 
Take heart, weary obeyer. Take heart, weary fighter, weary worker. God is not a passive spectator cheering you on from the sidelines. God is at work in you right now, working for His good pleasure, shaping your will and your desires so that you do what He's called you to do. Take heart. Whatever God calls you to do, He will give you the power necessary to do it. So when you find yourself obeying, thank God. When you love the unlovely, thank God. When you choose what's right, thank God. When you show mercy to the weak, thank God. When you give generously to God's kingdom work, thank God. When you get up early and read your Bible and pray, thank God. When you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner and take in the stranger, thank God. When you turn the other cheek, thank God. When you share the gospel with your neighbor, thank God. When you tell the truth on your tax return, thank God. When you turn from pornography, thank God. God, when you forgive and bless instead of curse, thank God. We act the miracle. We work out our salvation for it is God who works in us. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for the miracle. Thank you that you're at work in us. Let that bring us the help and, and the hope and the strength and the encouragement that you intend. Let your word go out now and let it have its intended effect. Raise up the weary. Grant us power to press on. We act the miracle. And we ask that you would work the miracle of sanctification in us and cause us to more and more walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Cause us more and more to live a life pleasing to you. Give us a gospel understanding of these things. Give us gospel thoughts that lead to gospel affections. And then let your glorious gospel work itself out in our life for our good and for our joy and for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.